This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my interview with Jeff Schessel was recorded in June of 2021. But now to the business at hand. Uh, very pleased to have this uh, young man with us for the first time ever on this show. After hundreds of shows, we're very pleased to welcome Jeff Shessel. It's a Monday. Uh, he is a prolific author. You have seen his work in the New York Times, Notable Books of the Year, which was titled Supreme Power and Mutual Contempt. He's a former speechwriter for President Bill Clinton and is a founding partner of West Wing Writers. The subject at hand is a brand new work called Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the new battleground of the Cold War. Should be a good one indeed. Jeff, uh, how are you, my friend? Uh, I'm good, Warner. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we're pleased you're here. Uh, wow, let's do this. Let's uh, give uh, our Lewis at Large listeners, Jeff, a little bit better sense of who you are and your background. What was the path uh, that led you to presidential speech writing? Well, I, I'm not sure that I would suggest that anybody who wants a career in presidential speech writing go out and, and try to do this, but I was a syndicated cartoonist before I became a, a presidential speechwriter. Uh, in the 90s, I had a syndicated comic strip called Thatch, and uh, I was also writing a book. You mentioned Mutual Contempt. That was my first book. It was about the feud between Lyndon Johnson and Robert Kennedy. Uh, I was very lucky that President Clinton was a big reader and uh, still is, and he read my book in 97, and, and I, I wound up getting a, a job offer out of it and uh, said goodbye to the comic strip and, and uh, went to work at the White House for the last three years of the administration. How was, uh, I'm just curious, and, and again, we need to, we will be jumping to the book pretty quick here, but I am curious, as you look back uh, on your time in the White House, did it turn out like you expected? Was it? Did it sort of meet your expectations, so to speak? Or what was maybe, for you, maybe a tremendous joy when you look back and then maybe one particular disappointment of some kind? Well, it, it really was. Even the tough days uh, at the White House are a tremendous joy because you just feel like you're given uh, an incredible privilege uh, to get to be there, uh, to have a short lease on an office there. You know it's temporary, and um, and you get to contribute at a, at a high level to um, advancing goals that, that you believe in. And uh, I know that all sounds a, a little bit corny, but I, I think... Working at the White House can bring that out in you. It, it really, um, it really was a joy, and 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 there were, as I said, some some difficult days in there. It's a, it's a tough place. It's an intense place to work. The stakes are very high in what you're doing, and uh, you know the arguments about that can can get fairly heated. Um, but I, I I think we all had a sense there. It was a very cohesive group in that White House, um, particularly in the second term. And I, I think we all had a, a, a sense that we were kind of pulling together uh, again in, 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 this, uh, in this effort. Um, a particular disappointments, gosh, well, uh, it, you know, I had the, um, uh, the, the, the blessing generally, it was a blessing of, of working for a president who, of writing speeches for a president who could give a great speech on his own extemporaneously without a text. 
And he sometimes did that. <laughs> and uh, you, you always felt good about the fact that he was using the, the, the draft that you gave him because you knew he didn't have to. Um, but there were occasions when you'd work very hard uh, for a period of, of days or even weeks on something, and uh, he would stand up and he would assess the crowd. And he would think anew about what he wanted to say, and he would just say it. And uh, you would sometimes wonder a little bit whether you, uh, <laughs> you know, whether you had contributed all you all you could. But, um, but it, no, it was really um, it, it was a very lucky thing to 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 get that job and that role and to write speeches for a president who appreciated speeches and gave great ones. You know, it's been a little while uh, since you were in that role. Do you think if you went back, is, is the role of the speechwriter uh, in 2021, you think, different than it was when you were uh, in the White House? There are certain aspects of the job that are always the same. You know, there used to be a kind of informal alumni association of presidential speechwriters, both parties, and we used to get together for these dinners. And uh, one of the things that always struck me was how similar our experience was with the the Truman speechwriters. There were Harry Truman speechwriters who would come to these dinners in the in the 90s, and and Reagan speechwriters. And there there was a, a lot of commonality, even though there had been changes in administration, in ideology, in technology, and and I think that's still true today. At the same time, I, I think that the speech, the presidential speech, generally counts for less. Than it than it used to, it's partly just the the din of of so many media sources, so much noise coming at you from so many different directions. But it's also that um, presidents are communicating by different means. Um, uh, a lot of uh, what a president might have given a speech to convey at one point will go out in a tweet. Even for a president like Biden, who doesn't live on Twitter like the previous president, so I, I do think that a speech is continues to be a powerful tool in the presidential arsenal but it is um it is certainly not uh it is not alone in that well let's uh get to the work and thank you for the background there appreciate it but let's talk about mercury rising john glenn john kennedy uh and the new background of the cold war this is a subject that uh, my gosh the space program uh has been put under the microscope a thousand different ways but my sense here uh indeed is this is far more than a story about science this is very much a political tale is it not it is absolutely and uh, my background is in political history and that that is what drew me to to this i mean i i've been as interested in the space races as a lot of people and is excited by these these stories of adventure and scientific advances and so forth. And yet, I really wanted to understand uh, the the flight of John Glenn, his flight and uh, his his orbital flight around the Earth, the first American to orbit the Earth in February of 1962. I wanted to understand why it was so significant. I mean, yes, I understood that being the first at something is important, but two Russians had already actually beaten him to that and, and orbited the Earth prior to that point. Two Americans had already been in space, not to orbit the Earth, but just quick trips, really, suborbital flights. And so to understand the, the meaning of the flight of John Glenn, the significance of that flight, you really have to look at it from a Cold War perspective. You really have to look at the set of challenges that were facing President Kennedy and the nation at that point. Democracy was under a serious challenge in the United States and, and around the world. There, it, it seemed at the time that the propaganda might actually be true and that communism might be the wave of the future. And the Soviet successes in space, which began in 1957 with Sputnik and 
and then proceeded through an incredible series of firsts, one first after another in space, made it seem as if the Soviets were moving more quickly toward the future than the United States. And there was a real question whether the U.S. would catch up. It was in that context that John Glenn orbited the Earth, and it was for that reason that his flight was so significant. If you just joined us, yours truly, Warner Lewis from the flight deck of Lewis at Large. I got a good one going here with Jeff Shessel. He is a prolific author and also a former speechwriter for President Clinton and also a founding partner of West Wing Writers. Uh, subject at hand, a Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy in the new battleground of the Cold War, brand new work uh, available now. Jeff, uh, I'm just curious as to, we all knew the significance, and undoubtedly, uh, the, the original seven astronauts, NASA astronauts, knew the importance of what they were doing. But in particular, uh, on this particular flight, John Glenn's, do you believe John Glenn knew the, the political significance of all of this and what it really meant at that particular timeline? Uh, or was he more focused, ultimately, on just being an astronaut at the time. Glenn was absolutely obsessively focused on his training uh, down to the most minute detail. And yet at the same time, Glenn was always somebody who understood what he was doing, who always saw what he was doing in some larger context, political context, geopolitical context. It's not a coincidence that when John Glenn left the space program, it was to run for the U.S. Senate. And of course, ultimately he wound up being elected in 1974, he served four terms as a senator from, from Ohio. So he, he was a cold warrior. He understood that this was not just about science. He believed it was very much about science. But he understood that this was uh, not just a, a friendly competition to see who could get there first and who could, uh, whether there meant orbit or what, around the Earth or whether there meant the moon, that this was an existential struggle between two systems. And you, you didn't actually have to be looking very hard to see that at the time. I, this is the way that it was talked about by the president, by the press. It was understood uh, to signal which nation was going to lead the world over the next decade and, and beyond. And there was a real sense across the free world that, as I said before, that that democracy might be slipping, might be losing its hold, that the United States had grown complacent during the 1950s and the Soviets were aggressively moving forward. And so John Glenn knew that his flight was, was significant, not just, uh, again, as a, a technological feat, but as, as a, a battle in this larger struggle uh, between freedom and totalitarianism. One of the things uh, that is certainly sort of implied, we won't, and we leave some of the detail for the readers to find out themselves. But, but from all appearances, you got the sense that John Kennedy was not only because of his military background, but just for who he was, was not only a supporter of the space program, but was actually sort of fascinated by all of it. And yet, one of the things that you're going to maintain is that no, not really. Uh, it wasn't that much of an interest to him, at least at the beginning. We remember one of the main things that we remember about John Kennedy is that he committed America to go to the moon. He, he gave uh, those incredible speeches vowing to go to the moon by the end of the decade and, and, uh, and, and bring the astronauts back safely. And, and of course, that, that pledge was fulfilled. But, but Kennedy was, was actually really reluctant to do that. 
he understood the symbolic importance of space. He understood that space around the world was seen to signal a lot of things, scientific and technological expertise, military power, and that the United States had to compete if it was going to be credible in the eyes of the world. And yet, he didn't see a lot of reason to commit massive amounts of taxpayer dollars to sending human beings into space. Nobody had really come up with a great rationale for, for sending humans into space, except that it would be an exciting challenge. And that wasn't enough for Kennedy. And over the first few months of, of his presidency, he uh, was focused on other things. There were a lot of crises developing around the world. And even though he had vowed during the campaign not to allow America to remain second in space, he didn't really have much of a plan at all to put America first in space. And it was really only in April of 1961 when the Soviets succeeded in sending the first man into orbit, and that was Yuri Gagarin, that, that Kennedy sort of woke up to the fact that he did not just a talk about it, but he needed to actually do something about it. And he scrambled over the next couple of weeks to come up with a goal that was big enough and distant enough that we might actually have time to get there. We weren't going to catch the Soviets in the near term, but maybe, just maybe, if we set a long-term goal that would, that would require a lot of investment, that would require a lot of technological advances, maybe by that point we could leapfrog the Soviets. And that's how we got to the moonshot. Which we did in July of 69, just in time. <laughs> just in time. That's right. Uh, interesting to me that, uh, so in, is it fair then to assume that had the Soviet Union not been enthralled with space as well, had they not been firing up rockets uh, late 50s, early 60s, we might still be in some ways sort of sitting on the ground, so to speak. That In essence, we were pushed by our sense of competition uh, in many ways. Is that true? We were pushed by the Soviets, absolutely. The, the U.S. space program, there, there were, in fact, efforts underway in the United States in the 1950s to, to get various things into space, satellites and, and other things, and then ultimately human beings. The Air Force had plans, the Navy and the Army, they each had their own plans. But it was really only when the Soviets sent the first object into orbit, the first satellite, Sputnik, in 1957, that the U.S. woke up to the threat. And it wasn't just a challenge, it was a threat. And a year later, uh, Eisenhower agreed to create NASA. He'd been very reluctant, but he wasn't willing to really truly invest in, in NASA. And that was a choice that was left to his successor. And as I said a moment ago, Kennedy didn't really wake up to the threat until the Soviets had succeeded in, in sending Yuri Gagarin into orbit. So we were prodded along by the Soviets, and not just, again, out of a competitive spirit, but out of out of a, a fear and real concern that the Soviets, as John Kennedy himself said, if the Soviets control space, they can control Earth. Those were the stakes as, as Kennedy and others saw them. So we go into space, uh, we do orbital flight, uh, we end up on the moon, uh, we have a space shuttle, we have a space station. Uh, and yet in 2021, uh, and I'm not belittling this at all, but 
space and space exploration, uh, other than the emerging private sector, is not getting much press time. There doesn't seem to be a lot of national interest in the government space program right now, quite frankly, for either country. A, is that take correct? And if it is, why so? And why the back off from the race in space? I think we've had a number of decades in which space was was not front and center, that unless there was a, a horrible disaster, that it, space really wasn't getting a lot of attention by the press or the public. But I actually think that there are a couple of space races underway right now, and it's generating a lot of excitement and, and, and growing interest on the part of the public. One is the space race between Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. These two companies, SpaceX and Blue Origin, are battling it out, and they're, they're making you know, pretty incredible advances in rocket technology, for example. So that's one. The other is that we are now under challenge in space, not just from Russia, which still has a presence there, but also from China. Uh, we have been celebrating the fact that we just put a lander on Mars, and we've got that fantastic helicopter ingenuity on, on Mars. And then right on the heels of that, China landed its own craft on Mars successfully, only the second nation after us to be able to do that successfully. And it it made a big show just a few days ago of unveiling a a red Chinese flag, which it had done on the moon uh, back uh, at the end of last year. So China is really making clear that it is going to challenge the United States in space and actually in near-Earth orbit, both China and Russia have invested a lot in what are called counter space capabilities, which is essentially the ability to destroy or disrupt our satellite networks. And of course, we depend on satellites uh, to listen to this program and, and for just about everything else, including our national security. So I think the focus on space is returning. And in part, it's because the stakes are rising and that we have real challengers up there. And it's not just to do things first but it is to establish superiority in space and all that that means on Earth. What did you learn, uh, maybe significantly, uh, about John Glenn and maybe about John Kennedy as you were doing uh, the kind of research you were doing for this work? That really... What I learned about John Kennedy, as I, I said a moment ago, is is that he was uh, reluctant, really, to commit uh, the nation to space. And, and we remember him for, for that commitment, but I think we've lost sight of... Uh, the fact that he he uh, he was slow to to actually get there, and uh, and 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 not fully convinced uh, even to the end of his life that it was actually all that important, except symbolically to get to the moon. What I learned about John Glenn is that this caricature we have of of Glenn and that you see in the movies and so forth, Glenn the Boy Scout, Glenn the Sunday School teacher, that yes, he was in fact both of those things. He was a scout. He was a Sunday school teacher. It was an authentic representation of who he was, but that there was a lot more to Glenn that the public didn't see, that he was a lot more competitive than that. He was more ambitious. He was edgier than that. He was he was difficult in some ways uh, for his uh, superiors at NASA, the senior uh, officials at NASA, to, to control. I mean, he was a forceful guy who had strong feelings about these things. He wasn't shy about letting those feelings be known within the program. And uh, as a result, he had some difficult relationships there. And so he was and remains a national hero, uh, something that he very much earned. But I, I think behind the scenes, he was 
as a, you know, I guess we all are behind the scenes, a more complex individual than that. One of the things that I know you explore in the book, and, and you can share with whatever detail you're comfortable with right now, but that John Glenn and Christopher Kraft, uh, the flight director uh, for that particular mission, um, both of them, uh, you sort of get a sense that they weren't totally confident in the uh, fact that the mission was going to be a success, and they were sort of bracing themselves in, in their own ways for something that could be a complete failure. Yes, you know, Chris Kraft on the eve of, of John Glenn's flight made a comment um, privately to a reporter. He said, you know, if we really let ourselves think about the odds, we would never get to the launch pad. There was uh, an enormous amount of risk that just had to be accepted in this. Uh, also on the eve of Glenn's flight, the president of Convair Astronautics, which built the rocket that John Glenn was going to ride into space, uh, he was asked by reporters um, how safe this thing was, and he, he gave it an 80% rating, meaning that he was seeing a one-in-five chance that something was going to go horribly wrong with this rocket. So they all recognized the risk, and they all recognized that a certain amount of risk had to be accepted if you were going to go forward at all. But it was really high-stakes stuff, and it was Glenn's life on the line, certainly, but it was also America's prestige around the world. And uh, the, the, the cost of a failure here, um, Glenn would lose his life, but the United States would, would lose a, a, a great deal um, uh, in, in terms of its credibility around the world. Well, the work is called Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War by Jeff Shessel, noted presidential speechwriter. He is also a prolific writer. Jeff, before we get out of here real quickly, how can people pick up a copy of the book and find out a little bit more about some of the past work that you have done? Well, well thanks for asking, Warner. The book should be available wherever books are sold, as they say. Um, uh, but you can also uh, track that down if you're having any difficulty or learn more about the book or about my other writing or about events we've got coming up on my website, which is mercuryrisingbook.com. Book is just BK, mercuryrisingbk.com. Jeff, appreciate the time. We'd love to have you back on again and have a great uh, 2021. Thanks so much, Warner. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.